We come to the second church addressed in the book of Revelation, chapters 1, 2 and 3, the seven churches which are symbolic of all the churches down the ages. Yes, it's a, a letter written to the churches at the time with their very specific local needs, but these are churches which teach us of the condition of us as believers at different stages and each of us as churches could go through the various things which these churches went through. Smyrna, this is the smallest of the letters, verses 8 of chapter 2 down to 11. And along with Philadelphia, this is one of the two churches of which there's no complaint made. There's no direct challenge and criticism. This was a faithful church. Oh, that we would be like Smyrna and Philadelphia. No complaint given. Smyrna is what we would call modern-day Izmir in Turkey. This is a church that was so very faithful. They had many advantages as a city. They rivaled Ephesus, the first church. They rivaled Ephesus as a city with schools of medicine and science, a very broad street that went down the middle of the city. They had an open-air theatre. It seated 20,000 people. This was a sophisticated city. And there, the church was so faithful. Ephesus, to summarise the Bible study last time, it was a challenge to their loveless orthodoxy. Well, the challenge here to this church at Smyrna is for them to continue in their faithfulness amid trial. Well, it's my conviction that we will know more and more trials in the coming years. When we read the times that we live in, the difficulties, you see more and more that believers and churches are going to come under scrutiny. We're going to be put in the public eye. And there will be challenge. Many will go before courts. I've got no doubt it's happened in recent years. And I think it's going to happen more and more. What an appropriate letter to consider here in summary in verse 11. If we go to the conclusion and then work our way back towards it. The conclusion here, verse 10 rather. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Do you know there is a school of thought that the churches and Christianity will just get better and better and better and we'll all sail off in our hot air balloons and there'll be no problems and nobody will take the air out and it will all be happily ever after. That is not what we read in the word of God. And this church, it's told that they will suffer. They will continue to suffer. They've already been faithful and they are to continue to be faithful. Some of us, with uh, one of our church members naming their baby today, have thought about names and the meaning of names. We tend to choose names in this country without too much thought. But the name Smyrna has a rich meaning. It comes from the word more or myrrh. You know that word, a bitter gum-like resin of a smooth fruit. The fruit was very small, a bit larger than a pea. 
It was pale red or yellow brown, something like that in colour. And to taste it, it was very bitter. Bitter to the taste. It was used in perfume, in purification and cleansing. And of course, as we know well, embalming a dead body in those days. So it's a picture of suffering, of bitterness and even of death. What an appropriate name to be given to this place of which the church that we remember is written. We shall think about it more later. But the person who is synonymous with Smyrna, if John was synonymous with Ephesus, the person that was synonymous with Smyrna was Polycarp, who would die as a martyr in 155 AD. We'll come back to that. A place of bitterness martyrdom, suffering, trial and death. But if you go back to chapter 1 and then we come to the greeting, this is what Christ says through John in chapter 1, verse 17. He says, And to the angel, or rather verse 17, chapter 1, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. I, that's Christ, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And if the message was summarised in one sentence of the church at Smyrna, don't be afraid of death. That's what they're being told. Christ in chapter 1 says, I was dead, but I'm now alive. Fear not. I've been through death. Death couldn't touch me. Death tried to conquer me. But no, I am alive that was dead, the first and the last. So if you look at the greeting, we start at verse 8 of chapter 2. Unto the angel, that's the pastor, the minister of the church in ancient Smyrna, just 40 miles northwest of Ephesus, write these things saith the first and the last, repeating chapter 1, which was dead and is alive. Always the greeting is relevant to the key message that's contained within the letter. Well, let's think of Christ. Christ had two deaths. Two deaths. If you'd like to turn to Romans chapter 6, verse 10. Let me show that Christ had two deaths and so will every believer in Christ have two deaths. Romans 6 and verse 10. This is what it says. Let's read from verse 9, or rather verse 8. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. And here's the key verse. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. What does that mean? Christ? Surely he didn't sin. No, it doesn't say that. He died to the power of sin. Sin had no mastery over him. But in that he liveth, he liveth Unto God. So the first death that Paul says in that 
chapter 6 to the Romans is that Christ died to sin in that sin had no power over him. He died once. Sin was never to come into his life. It was to have no rule over him, no mastery. He was tempted on those three occasions, but he never sinned. He died, as it were, in the picture to sin. Sin had no mastery, no power over him. Well, he also, of course, had a second death, the death of his physical body. But death also, his second physical death, or rather his second death, which was a physical one, that also had no mastery over him. For three days, no decomposition, he came alive. The grave could not hold him. He passed through death. And so we take encouragement from this. This is what the writer is saying. I was dead, says Christ, but am alive. The two deaths couldn't hold a candle to him. They couldn't control him. The death to sin and the physical death couldn't hold him in the grave. So his life had no lasting death in it. Death did its utmost to destroy Christ, but it couldn't. It killed the physical body, but that's not our life. Our life is much more than the physical body. Our life is the spirit. It's the spirit within us. Death cannot do away with our life because as a believer tonight, your life is hid with him in Christ. We're not to be afraid of death. And that's the message here to the church at Smyrna. Yes, we are to die to our self-will. Unlike Christ, the death to self is a slow and painful one. Each time that we have to say no to the flesh, it's painful. But the more we say no, and the more the old man, the carnal man, dies, and the old nature with it, the more joy we have, the more life, the more we're like Christ. And the life of Christ within us is proved, and just as he was dead to self, and he always did the Father's will, so we, if self dies, we will do the Father's will. We have to pass through this death, this death to sin. So he goes on, verse 9. I know thy works, an expression used in each of the letters. He knew their character. He knew their demeanour. He knew everything about them. The difficulties and the trials and that's true of us tonight. The Lord knows your life. He knows your marriage. He knows your school. He knows your job. He knows your treatment. He knows your family circumstances. And he says, I know thy works, thy deeds, the things that you have to go through. And I know your trials, your difficulties, your testings, your distresses. And I know your poverty. Oh, the Lord is so empathetic. And he can say that because he does know. Because he wasn't a phantom man. 
He was the real God-man. And so there is a reality to trials and difficulties. People sometimes say, oh, I know how you must feel. And sometimes we don't. We don't know what somebody's going through because we've never been through that, that exact thing. But the Lord knows. I know thy works, thy trials, the reality. He knows the reality. He knows the source. He'll come on to explain that. And as we shall see unfolding through this study, he knows the purpose of the trials that we go through, the pressures that we're constantly under. If you're a believer in Christ tonight, the Lord knows you're under pressure. If you're not under pressure, are you really living the Christian life? Have you not gone back to self and gone back to the old ways? No, this church here at Smyrna, they were being faithful and the Lord knew the struggle they had to survive. Let me explain what happened. In those days, there was an edict from the emperor at the time, AD 97, when this letter was written and they were commanded to bow down to the emperor and they wouldn't do it. They just would not do it. And as a result, they became poor because they lost their jobs. They became hungry. They lost what they had. And they could have dwelt upon their poverty and everything they've lost. But the Lord says to them, the bit in brackets, not sure why it's in brackets, it stands out to me. But thou art rich. You've got everything. You've got new life in Christ and your bank accounts not to be the assessment of what you really are and your eternal riches. That's what he says to them. Go on. There's another thing here. The blasphemy. What was happening was there was those who were claiming to be Jews, but they weren't true believers in Christ and they were slandering them, speaking badly of them. They were blaspheming them. They said that they were Jews, but they were not, not Jews of the heart, just outwardly. And they came from this extreme term, the synagogue of Satan. Literally, these were schooled in Satan's lies. They were being taught by Satan how to tell lies and deceive and pretend, and their religion was a complete sham, blasphemy, the synagogue of Satan. There was no love, no compassion. Sometimes we can have that in churches. Somebody says, oh, that's just not right, that person coming in and doing this and doing that. They come from this culture, that culture. And there's no heart, no compassion. They've not understood where they've come from. These Christians here in Smyrna, they had a faithful heart and they had lived obediently. And those who were criticising were all law, law, law and no grace. They were of the synagogue of Satan, teaching things that were not true. Well, we must be careful of that, careful of accusing others who perhaps don't have the light that we have, they don't have the upbringing, they don't have the insight, they don't have the books to read at home. 
Perhaps we could be more sympathetic, compassionate, not laying down the law, but drawing near and understanding the difficulties and the trials. Well, let's come on to think, why does the Lord allow these things? Why did this church at Smyrna, so soon after it had been established, why did it have to go through these trials? The first purpose is this. We need trials to see who truly is a believer. To see whose religion is on the outside and there's no heart religion. No love for Christ deep within and love for his people. You see there's a big distinction here between those who said they were Jews but those who are not. And those who really were faithful who had stood up in the guild and say, no, I will not name the emperor's name. I stand for Christ, my king, my ruler, the one that died for me, the one that is my saviour, my unseen saviour, the one that I love and care for. That's the first reason for trials, to sort the wheat from the chaff. The second reason is that we need to grow spiritually. Do you know, I've never had a trial in my life, and I haven't had many, but when I look back and see the trials I've had, I've never had one that didn't bring me nearer to the Lord, didn't enable me to grow, to weaken my self-will, my dependence on self, my thinking that I can do. And every true trial that we have and trouble and distress at home, at work, in church? Does it not bring us to our knees? Does it not make us to trust in the promises of God and to believe that he is sufficient and that he is able and that he will help in time of need? So a second reason. What a message. Verse 10. Fear none of these things which thou shalt, not might, thou shalt suffer. There will be an enduring experience for them. They've got to persevere. They've already been faithful. They need to keep on going on, being faithful, continuing to continue, as it were, to be faithful amidst the suffering and the difficulties. They will suffer, but don't be afraid. Let's turn to Acts 14 and verse 22 and see another group of churches that were suffering and see how Paul draws near to them. Acts 14 and verse 22. Paul and Barnabas, it says of them, verse 21, perhaps 14, verse 21, Acts and when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming, the word there means strengthening, establishing, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them, encouraging them to continue in the faith that we must, through much tribulation, Enter into the kingdom of God. This 
is what they experienced, why should we be an exception? Why should we go through life on peaceful beds of ease, as one of our hymn writers says, while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bruising seas? Oh, this church that Paul and Barnabas were encouraging, they were being told, no, we're not going to give you sweet words of comfort. No, you will enter. Enter the kingdom of God, but it will be through much tribulation. If you've not known much trial in your Christian life to date, if you're a young believer, well, are you living the Christian life as you ought? And if you are, be prepared for more suffering. This isn't a gloomy message. It's a message that sorts the wheat from the chaff, that strengthens faith. This is a normal part of Christian living in God's kingdom, that through trials we shall enter. The tribulation, the trials that we go through, they will reveal the extent of our faith. Think of Abraham. What a trial. What a trial. Going up Mount Moriah. They saw nothing until the Lord spoke and saw in answer to their faith that they were exercising faith in the promise and then, only then, and they turned round and behind them was the ram stuck in the thicket preventing Isaac from being taken. Oh, Abraham's faith grew and so did Isaac's. The son was, as it were, resurrected from certain death and the promise that the Lord would provide was fulfilled. Well, back to Revelation 2, verse 10. Behold, look carefully, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. What a gloomy outlook. This isn't a very pretty letter to read. Church at Smyrna, if you've not been in prison so far, the devil will throw some of you into prison, that ye may be tested and tried. Well, did the devil really do that? Well, he did, but he only did it when the Lord permitted it. The Lord never, ever allows any believer to be tested, tempted, tried, above that which strength will be given. The Lord is in control. He's in control of this church. If he thinks that we need trials and testing, he will permit it. It will be for his purposes. But here the devil, no doubt, was telling lies of some of the believers, and they would be put in prison, probably falsely, maybe not falsely, maybe they did, do what was right before the Lord, but wrong before the emperor. And so they will be put into prison. But look at this term. Remember, remember this is revelation. Ye shall have tribu tribulation ten days. What on earth does that mean? Well, we can look at all the numbers in the book of Revelation. Ten is one of those numbers which is a sign of completeness. There were ten commandments. There didn't need to be eleven or nine, there was ten. It just means 
a limited but complete period of time. It wasn't literally going to be 10 days for every prisoner, but it would be just the time that the Lord permitted, a complete trial, just enough to test faith, but not too much to bring us down. Why do some of us need to be put back into prison? May we, maybe we've forgotten what it is to be faithful, to stand up, Maybe we will have to be tested because our faith isn't yet strong enough. Maybe we've been believing some of the lies that Satan tells and whispers into our ears that God is against us. God is not against us. God is for us and with us. Maybe if we believe that lie that God is against us, then... The Lord will have to allow certain trials. He doesn't do it to punish. He does it to test and to strengthen. Think of Job's faith. Unshaken during his adversity. He doesn't rail against God in his affliction. He didn't even blame the devil. He didn't blame the people or his family. Instead, he did the opposite. He blessed God. He blessed God for all that he had done. And in the end, he saw that God gave him more than he lost. And that will be the case with us in the Christian life. If we have to suffer, if we lose, we won't really lose. We'll gain. We might lose earthly riches, but we will gain spiritual riches so that we are rich. So the exhortation here at the end of verse 10, Be thou faithful unto death. The church that I used to be in would sing this at the end of each person that was baptised. What a good thing to say. I preached on this in Sri Lanka just recently on a beach with four baptised. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. What's the death that we're going to go through? Well, remember again, there's two deaths. There's the death to self and to sin. <coughs> Romans 8, 6, to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Oh, that's the first death. But then there is the second death, the physical death. But it won't hold us just as it didn't hold Christ. Look at the promise here. There's a promise in each of these letters at the end. And I will give thee a crown of life, not any old crown, but the crown that Christ gives. Oh, that's a special crown. It's an eternal crown, a crown that can't be taken away because salvation can't be taken away. This is the crown put on our head. The part of us that thinks. The part of us that loves and desires to obey Christ. And in verse 11. He that hath an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now this is. 
a term. I've touched on it already, but I want to just prove that this is the meaning of the book of Revelation when it mentions the second death. It's a confusing term to some. Let's just turn to a few scriptures. Revelation 20 and verse 6. And this is a verse that's much misunderstood. Revelation 20 and verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. Well, that's speaking of Christ. But it's also speaking of every one within Christ who, who within Christ dwells. They've taken part in the first resurrection when we died to self and to sin, pictured in our baptism. That's why we have full immersion. It's as though we go down into the grave and we rise again to new life. The first resurrection, dying to self, dying to Satan, dying to sin. Of course, in this life, we have to keep on dying to self. We have to keep on dying to sin in order for us to be blessed and holy. That's the first death, the first resurrection. On such, those who are true believers, the second death hath no power. Well, it had no power over Christ and it will have no power over us. Don't be afraid of death. The Lord was telling the church at Smyrna. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ. Who's they? Every true born-again believer who's come to an end of self, who's turned from sin and Satan and repented. They shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, that's not a literal millennium. That's that time period from Christ's first coming to his second coming. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. How do I know it's not a literal thousand years? Well, is Satan totally bound now? No, he's not. He still tempts and tests the church and believers. But there will become a time when Satan will no longer do that and he will no longer test the church. So that's the first scripture. Look down as well to verse 14. And we see it mentioned as well in the same chapter, Revelation 20 and verse 14. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. They shall be no more. They'll have no power. This is the second death. And verse 15, a sobering verse. And whosoever was not found, written in the book of life, Lamb's book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. The lake of fire for believers in the second death, all it did was take away that which was perishable, that which was to be cleansed and to be taken away. That's what the second death does. What will that be for us? Sin will be no more. 
When we died to sin the first time, yes, it was a death to the mastery of Satan, the control of Satan, his rule. But in a sense, it wasn't complete because sometimes he still gets the best of us. Not always, but sometimes. But at the second death, oh, that which is perishable and corrupt, that will be taken away and we will be cleansed and purified totally. We are already legally, but we shall be actually. But what a contrast. Verse 15. Those who are not found in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. What a difference there will be. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Whosoever will can come and take of the waters of life freely. The Lord turns none away. Whosoever will. But whosoever would not have him to rule over them, they will be cast away. And then turn on to chapter 21 and down to verse 8 or on the same page. But we'll read verse 7. He that overcometh, like those at the church of Smyrna, shall inherit all things. Oh, what a thing that is. All things. You don't need to fear death if you love Christ, if Christ is in you. I will be his God and he shall be my son adopted into his family. But the fearful, those who were sham in their faith, they wouldn't stand up because they were not true believers. The unbelieving and the abominable, the loathsome and detestable. Those who did sinful deeds, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. Another word for sulphur. The word sulphur means cleansing, purifying, which is the second death. The picture becomes clear. The second death for us is just passing from physical life to purely spiritual life, life in another form. Christ died in the body, but he didn't die. Spiritually, he was alive. When Adam ate the forbidden fruit, he left the environment and the realm of righteousness and life, and he entered into the environment and realm of self-will and of death and of damage to self. And just as in Adam have all been cast into the first death, all will die because the wages of sin is death. And we enter that realm of self-will and decay of the physical body and aging and corruption and the lies and the deception of the flesh but in God's infinite wisdom, the second death for all who are in Christ will only be about cleansing and taking away of the perishable. And so we shall pass through the second death. It will have no hold upon us. And all who are dead in Christ shall rise again, just as he did. He went through. What did the Lord say? He said, 
If a seed is to come to life, it must first die. You put a, a seed in the ground, unless it's died first, it won't come to life and it won't have a harvest. And so with us, we must die the first death and the second death. And then we will come to new life. God gives a precious promise. He says it won't hurt us. This second death that we will all have to go through. It won't lay hold of us. It won't hold us. It won't hurt us. We'll just pass through. And then the Lord will call us to be with him. One more scripture, Colossians. In chapter 2, this makes it even clearer. Colossians chapter 2. And we read verse 12. Colossians 2 and verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith, your own faith, no, the faith which is an operation of God who hath raised him from the dead and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened brought to life together with him having forgiven you all trespasses you see there's a parallel here and the church at Smyrna is being taught don't fear death some of you are going to die he says some of you will be put in prison you will be there but only as many days as the Lord will permit. But whatever the future holds for you, be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. What about Polycarp? Let me tell you a little about him just in closing. He was an apostle of John. John who was on the island of Patmos. <coughs> We believe that Polycarp was born in A.D. 69 and he held on tightly to the crown of life. He was the bishop, so-called, of Smyrna, or rather the pastor of Smyrna, as we would say. Sixty years after this letter was written to the church at Smyrna, in around about A.D. 155. This is remarkable history. Revelation, A.D. 97. Polycarp was born in A.D. 69. He lived to a ripe old age of 86. And after this letter, the letter to the church at Smyrna, he was told to bow to Caesar. But he wouldn't renounce the faith. He said this, he's done me, speaking of Christ, no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king? Who saved me? Well, the proconsul at Smyrna said to him, We will send wild beasts and fire upon you. And Polycarp famously replied, You threaten me with a fire, but that fire only burns briefly. And after just a little while it will be extinguished. But you are ignorant of the coming fire and eternal judgment and punishment reserved 
for the ungodly. Quoting from Revelation 20 and 21, he said to the man, Why do you delay? Come on, do as you wish. What faith, what faith. He was bound, he was burned at the stake, but the fire didn't work. It didn't kill him the first time. It failed to consume his whole body. And so they had to stab him, to take his life. And in his dying words, he was faithful, as he said he would be. Well, what do we learn from all this tonight? The church at Smyrna, wonderfully, wonderfully faithful. But their urge to go on. The Lord knows the reality of their trials. He knows the source. Satan and his school of lies. But he knows the purpose of the trials. What were they to do? What does it mean to be faithful unto death? No compromise. Don't give in. Don't dampen down your convictions in the truth. Believe in God's word. The faith once delivered to the saints is the faith that we believe in and that we contend for. It means, secondly, to depend upon the Lord alone, not your own strength. Do you know, I'm sure that the reason some of us have trials is because we don't trust enough. And the Lord wants to strengthen our faith and it's a mercy and a grace of God that he permits some of us to grow, go through trials so that we can grow. So that the reality of our faith will be seen within the family circle and at large. And to help us to see the true sinful old nature of our hearts that remains within us. And the more we die to self, the sweeter will be our communion with the Lord. And the Lord will wean us from pride and self and sin and then we'll grow in faith. He says to the church here, Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he that overcomes because we've appropriated by faith the promises of God shall not be hurt by the second physical death. All that that will do for every true believer is to take away what's left of the dross of self and of sin so that we are purified finally before we come before Christ. Well, may the Lord help us to be faithful if necessary. even.